Seven Mile Road, each week, week in and week out, we get a chance to sit under God's word. And we do that purposefully because we really do feel like in God's word, we're able to find life. We're able to see things clearly. We're able to see who God is for who he is. We're able to see ourselves for who we really are and be led to truth. And so this morning, we get a chance to do that once again. The portion of scripture we're looking at this morning is Mark chapter 10. If there's a Bible in front of you, it's found on page 846. We're looking specifically this morning at Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. I'm going to read from the scriptures, and then Pastor Jay is going to come up and preach. This is what God's word says. It says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And, the baptiz and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit in my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we sit now in your presence, needy for you, by your Spirit to come and give our eyes sight and our ears hearing, our minds light, our hearts a softness to receive your word, and a life that, empowered by your grace, not only hears what we say, what it says, but does it. We pray that you would come and help us and transform us for the glory of Christ and our joy. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today is a special day in the life of our church. Every now and then, we have normal Sundays, but then we have Sundays where the goodness and grace of God is so evident to us, it's almost like we could see it, and so tangible to us, it's almost like we can touch it. And that's what today is. And today, I want to say, in the first service, Mary, Shainu, Katie, and Jake, and in this service, Tracy, and Brett, and Freddie, and Daniel... That's what you are to us. I want you to hear right from the start of this service. We see you as the gift of God to us and receive you as a grace from his hands, that he would love us such that he would raise you up for this hour. You see, Seven Mile Road, today we as a church get to call four brothers and sisters from this morning and four in this uh, second service to the office of deacon. 
Now, if that's an unfamiliar word for you, the word deacon, what is that? It actually comes from a Greek word, diaknos. And the original word actually just meant an attendant, like a waiter, someone who waits on a table and serves food and drink. In fact, it's more often than not translated servant. If you wanted to know what the office of deacon was about, if you could sum it up in one word, it's about serving. That's what deacons do because servants is who deacons are. Since deacons are by name and definition servants, what they do is they serve. Deacons are those who lead the church by serving as the church has needs. Hear that again. Deacons are those who lead the church by serving as the church has needs. And that'll look different in different times. Sometimes that will be walking with a family going through a crisis and ensuring that their practical needs are met and their food on their table and in their pantry. Sometimes it'll be handling finances and ensuring that bills are paid. Sometimes it'll be managing and overseeing the administration of the church and ensuring that its affairs are handled rightly and well. Sometimes it'll make sure that kids are cared for and ministries are run. Sometimes it'll be leaky roofs that are fixed and running toilets that are repaired and food that is insured for a meeting or chairs set up for a service. You see, the point is, in a multitude of ways, deacons serve because deacons are those who lead the church by serving as the church has needs. And as varied and many as the church's needs are, so varied and many will be the ways in which deacons serve. You see, these two offices, 1 Timothy 3 in your Bibles, you'll see elders or pastors and deacons. They're put right next to each other. And in a sense, it's as if elders serve the church by leading and deacons lead the church by serving. Right? Elders are those who serve the church by leading and deacons are those who lead the church by serving. Now, having said all of that, I don't know about you, but leaky roofs and running toilets and waiting on tables and being the church's servants doesn't exactly sound like the most appealing job description, right? Who instinctively is wired in such that they've raised their hands and volunteer to be the church's waiters, the, the church's servants? You see, we know that instinctively every one of us want to be at the top of the totem pole and not the bottom. If we aspire to something, we aspire to rise to the place where people serve us, not to descend to the place where we serve people. Who then, and how then, does someone willingly, and may I even add gladly, embrace the office of servant? Who then, and how then, does someone voluntarily, willingly, and gladly embrace the role of a servant? And that's why I want you to hear especially to Tracy, and to Freddie, and to Daniel, and to Brett. You need on this day, as you are called to be servants, to hear what Jesus has to say about what it means to be a diaknos. And with them, Seven Mile Road, it's not just them, but we too need to hear what Jesus has to say and need to embrace what he has to say about what it means to be a servant. He says it in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. So if you've got a Bible, and if you need one, there's one in the seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that as a gift from us to you. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 46, it'll be on the screen as well. 
As you turn there, as you look there, let me just set up the scene for you. This passage actually comes on the heels. If you look in your Bibles and scan up, you'll see right before this passage, it's got a title that says, Jesus predicts his death for a third time. See, right before this section we're looking at, Jesus is leading the way and heading towards Jerusalem. He's got his disciples walking behind them, and he's just finished telling them for a third time what's going to happen when they get to Jerusalem. He's told them that he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, who will take him into their hands and flog him and mock him and spit on him and kill him. And after that, he will rise. Well, the disciples, they don't hear anything but the last part. Jesus is going to rise. When they get to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to rise. So they don't hear anything else, and they're picturing when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he will rise. And with that in their minds, two disciples, a pair of brothers named James and John, make a request of Jesus. They come to him in verse 35, and here's what they say. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It sounds like the kind of things that kids say to their parents, right? Dad and mom, I'm going to ask you something, but here's the thing. you got to say yes. And anytime they ask for that blank check in advance, you know what they're going to ask for is shady and wrong, right? So that's why they're saying to you, I'm going to ask you something, but you got to say yes to it. And that's what these disciples do. Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus is willing to play along. So he's essentially going to say, all right, let me hear it. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? So now they've got Jesus' attention. They're going to get a blank check from Jesus. They can ask him anything their hearts desire. And here's what their heart wants more than anything else. 37. And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Here's the request they make when they could ask for anything they wanted with a blank check from Jesus. Jesus, when you get to Jerusalem and when you rise, we want to sit one at your right hand and one at your left when you come into your glory. Now their request reveals something about their hearts, but Seven Mile Road and to you four, can I tell you, their request something, reveals something about our hearts as well. You see, what their request reveals is that we all have a deep desire for glory. Did you hear it again? We all have a deep desire for glory. It's not just James, and it's not just John. We all have a deep desire for glory. Let me tell you about one of the greatest moments of my life. Okay, I've had lots of great moments. One of the greatest moments of my life is when I was 15 years old, it's the Friday after Thanksgiving, and I'm standing at Calhoun Football Field in Merrick, New York, and I'm about to play my first ever Turkey Bowl, right? I had grown up watching older friends that I had respected and admired play this annual Thanksgiving Day game. And they would play tackle football, and I was too young. So year after year, I would watch from the sidelines. But when I turned 15, I was graduated and promoted to be allowed to play. And these guys that played, they were all college-age kids. The quarterback was a college football player. I knew of no Indian in the world that played college football, and I was going to be on the same field with him. So it was glorious to me. So I line up. I'm a wide receiver. He calls hike, and I start running. 
running as fast as these legs would carry me. I run 40, 50 yards, and he throws the ball in my direction. I'm running as fast as I can. I'm tracking this ball. I've got a college-age kid who's draped on me as a defender, and I'm tracking this thing, and now I watch it come towards my hands, and it hits me right here in the arm. And then it bounces here, and I'm still running, and with a kind of concentration I've never had before or since, I secure this ball into my hands, and I bring this thing in, drape the defender on me, catch it growing to the ground, hold on to the ball. It's a catch. Can I tell you? Yes, awesome indeed. Yes, that's exactly what I was going for. I get up before I can even get up. The rest of my teammates had run down 50 yards to greet me. They're screaming. They're chanting. They're talking trash to the college-age kid. A 15-year-old just caught over you. I could close my eyes and be right there, right now. And I could still hear it. A J is glorious. A J is glorious. I don't know if that's what they said, but that is what I heard, right? And that's how I felt, because you see, in that moment, I mattered. In that moment, I was worth something. In that moment, the people I looked up to approved of me and accepted me and extolled me and said that there was something meaningful about me in that moment. In that moment, I was significant and weighty. I could have died and been buried on that field as happy as could be, right? Because in that moment, everything about me mattered. I was weighty and significant. Can I tell you, the literal translation for the word glory means weighty, heavy, like something of substance, something that matters. And in that moment, I felt the cravings and pangs of what, what one author would call glory hunger. You see, I have glory hunger. And I want to say it's not just me. I suspect that if you were to close your eyes, you too could recall a moment when you were at your best, when you heard that word of compliment about an accomplishment or achievement, you heard someone speak of your appearance in glowing ways, you could go right back there. And I want you to hear, it's not just us. We all have glory hunger. It's why a kid who's in his living room pretending to be at bat, swinging an imaginary bat, how does he swing that bat? It's not just any game he's playing in. In his mind, he's crafted a scenario. And what's the scenario? It's game seven of the World Series, and it's the bottom of the ninth inning, and it's a full count with two outs, and the bases are loaded, and when the pitch comes in, in his imagination, he never swings and misses. He cracks that bat, and it goes over the fence, and he hits a grand slam, and he wins the game, and he rounds the bases, and everyone chants and cheers his name. That's the way it works. It's why the kid on the driveway isn't just shooting hoops. No, he's crafted a scenario for how he's shooting hoops. There's three seconds left, and they're down by one, and he inbounds the pass, and as the clock goes down, three, two, he shoots it up, and it goes in, nothing but net, and everyone screams his name and carries him on their shoulders out the stadium. That's the way it works. It's why a teenager needs to get an A in school or needs to be popular. It's why a lawyer needs to make partner, or a business person needs a promotion. It's why we want to be beautiful. It's why we want to be successful, because all of us have deep within us this glory hunger, something to give us meaning and value and worth and significance and weight to us. 
I was reading this book, or at least parts of it, and I'd recommend it to you, called Glory Hunger by J.R. Vassar. And J.R. Vassar says, you know, part of this is because we were wired and created this way. From the hour man began, there was a need for glory. In fact, if you think back to the beginning of our Bibles, Genesis 1 and 2, God creates, and he creates mountains and lakes and valleys and rivers, and at the pinnacle of it all, the apex of his creation, he says, essentially, I'm going to turn it up a notch. And he creates this man and this woman. And he looks over Adam and Eve in the garden. Do you remember what he says? He looks them square in the eye and he says over them, this is very good. And this author was saying, can you imagine? I mean, you can imagine any compliment to your accomplishment, any word of affirmation to your appearance, but nothing would register in your soul like Almighty God looking you in the face and saying, you are very good. I mean, imagine the satisfaction of hearing God say over you, you bring me such delight. You are so pleasing to me. I so adore and love you. You are very good. Adam and Eve gloried in that verdict until Genesis 3. And if you read Genesis 3, a serpent comes into the garden and convinces Eve that the glory God's given her isn't enough, that he's actually holding out, that she could have more, that what she needs is actually an elevation, a promotion. Her current place isn't enough. She can not only have a kind of glory that God's given her, she could have God's glory. She could become like God. And so she and her husband buy into that lie and chew into that fruit. And from that moment, there's this tragic fall. And suddenly, this wired glory hunger in us gets twisted. And from that moment on, rather than hearing the very good of God, and rather hearing his blessing, we now hear his curse. And rather than commendation, we hear condemnation. And from that moment on, the man and the woman and all their descendants thereafter have been in this endless pursuit to hear again some way we are very good. Something in our soul to rest in the fact that we are very good. Approved of. Okay, just as we are. J.R. Vassar describes this one time where he was a, a jury on a jury on a courtroom. And he said, sitting in that jury box, he looked at the defendant. And the defendant is sitting there, looking down the whole time, every now and then glances to the jury, hoping that this jury of his peers will give him a thumbs up and not a thumbs down, a positive verdict, say a word of yes and not no to him. And he said, sitting in that jury and watching that defendant, he realized at that moment he had far more in common with that man than he'd like to imagine. And I imagine so do you and so do I. Because he said, you know, the reality is day after day, I find myself looking to a jury of my peers, hoping in some way to get their approval hoping to sway with all the evidence that I can present about myself why they should give me their yes and not their no. Because you see, if you don't have the yes of God, then you will live and die by the verdict of a jury of your peers. If you don't have settled in your soul a yes from God, then you daily live or die by a verdict from the jury of your peers. This is the way it works. And I'm saying this on this day especially to say to Tracy and to Freddie and to Daniel and to Brett, you too 
need to be aware of a desire in your heart for glory. You, you too need to know this, and I want you to hear this from experience. Serving in Jesus' church, even as a leader, does not make you immune from the fact that you too crave glory. In fact, can I tell you from experience, one of the scariest things about ministry is that we can actually twist this whole thing so that Jesus becomes a means for our glory. And ministry becomes a path to which we crave that glory hunger. In fact, Jesus, rather than being the ends of our ministry, becomes a means in our ministry towards the ends of our glory. In fact, listen to how James and John said it. Listen again to their question. What did they say? When you get in, give us a seat at your right hand and your left in your glory. Isn't that the thing with Christian ministry? Being a Christian leader means what, what do these two want? They want not their own glory, not displace Jesus, not replace Jesus. They just want a share in Jesus' glory. You see, for them, they're not trying to replace him. He should be at center stage. It's just that when you look to center stage, it would be nice if they were seated to the right and to the left. They should, they would affirm, Jesus should get the spotlight. It would just be nice that as the spotlight falls on him, a bit of it falls on us as well. And it's not just James and John. If you read down to verse 41, when the other ten disciples hear of it, they too, the text says, and when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. The other ten find out and hear of James and John's request, and they are ticked. Now, why are they ticked? I can promise you that they're not annoyed because they are so offended for Jesus' sake. They're not thinking to himself, Jesus just told us he's going to die, and you're thinking about your thrones? That's not why they're offended. They're offended that James and John thought of it first. That's why they're offended. What do you mean you two get to sit at his right and left hand? What about us? Why on earth would he choose you over us? What do you think is so great about you that he would put you there? And where do you imagine we would sit if you two sit there? Right? That's the kind of thing. And in fact, what's crazy about this whole text is it's actually deja vu. This whole thing, if you turn left one chapter, played out in chapter 9. In chapter 9, if you turn over, it's the second time Jesus talked about his death. And right after talking about his death, do you know what they do? They get into an argument about who is the greatest. Right? That's chapter 9. Jesus says, I'm going to die and go to Jerusalem and rise. And they get into an argument about which one of them is the greatest. Perhaps because right before that was the transfiguration. This moment where Jesus brought them up to the mountain, three of them, and showed them his glory. And maybe they had a conversation about it. Maybe Peter and James and John went to the other nine and said, hey, do you remember when Jesus showed us his glory? Oh, that's right. You guys weren't there. That's right. It was the three of us. I wonder who is the greatest among us. And you can imagine one of them saying, shut up, Peter. He called you Satan one minute before that, right? <laughs> you can imagine this squabble. But here's what I want you to hear then. This is the raw material that Jesus had to work with when he was building his church. These are the, literally the first leaders of the entire gospel movement. Isn't it something that the raw materials that Jesus has to work with are a bunch of people who are committed to their prominence and their position and their place such that you can see their pride? If it was in them, I want you to hear 
I want you to hear Brett and Freddie and Daniel and Tracy, it's in us as well. In fact, every person in Christian ministry would tell you, when we're in our sanest of minds, we do want everyone to look at Jesus. But then we grow a little bit insane, and we think to ourselves, while they're looking at Jesus, it would be really nice if they were looking at us as well. And while they see him, it would be nice to be seen. And can I tell you, if I were to make for you an unhappy prediction, a sad guarantee, can I tell you that there is nothing like being a servant that will stoke glory hunger? There's nothing like serving that can bring it up to the surface. Because can I tell you, despite our best intentions as a church, as your brothers and sisters, this wouldn't be our intention, but can I promise you there will be times where your service will go unnoticed and unthanked and unseen. You see, nobody will notice when the leaky roof gets fixed. Everyone will notice when it's leaking. No one will remember when it gets fixed. And everyone will call when the toilet is running. No one will remember to thank when it stops. No one will notice when the food is set up or the chairs are put right or put away. Despite our best intentions, the hour is going to come where you will be unnoticed and unapplauded and unthanked and overlooked and underappreciated. When that hour comes, how will you fight against growing bitter? Because I don't think it's going to be an instant cure that you can just hear this today and you'll never struggle with this. I think it's going to be a fight. And you'll have moments of victory and moments of defeat. Even despite today, there are going to be times where you need to confess to a brother or sister about what's going on in your soul. But in that hour, how will you fight from your desire for glory, from choking out the joy that comes with serving in Jesus? How will you keep your heart from being squeezed out of the gladness of serving him such that your heart becomes bitter and dead and numb and stiff and lifeless? See, I want to say to you today on the day you're being called, you will need an arsenal of truths ready at hand to fight in that hour so that your heart might not grow hard and grow dark and grow bitter. You'll need an arsenal of truths to pull on. So maybe when that hour comes, you'll remember back to Mark 1, when Jesus was baptized. And you remember that at Jesus' baptism, the Father spoke over the Son and said, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. And maybe you'll remember that in your baptism, you were united to Christ, so that what happened to him happens to you, and that affirmation is now over you. You don't need to perform for it. You don't need to achieve it. It's settled. It's fixed. It's done. And maybe in that hour when you are feeling like no one sees your worth or value, you'll go back and pull that arsenal and remember, I am in Christ. And the Father looks over me and says, you are my beloved child. With you, I am so pleased. You make me so happy. I am so delighted in you, not because of anything you've done, but because of what my son did for you. Or maybe in that hour, you'll pull another arsenal. You pull out the truth that Jesus once said, you know, if you give so much as a cup of cold water in my name, I will never forget it. Can you imagine? 
when no one notices the toilet stopped running or the meal has been set or the kid has been ministered to or the family has been walked with or the couple has been counseled, when no one else sees, when no one else remembers, Jesus says, not just that, even a cup of cold water. If you give it to one of my disciples in my name, I will never forget it. So maybe in that hour, you'll pull on that from the arsenal and you'll remember to yourself what is unseen is temporary, I mean, what is unseen is eternal. What is seen is temporary. In this moment, maybe you're not getting anything, but there is something eternal waiting for you. And that which goes unnoticed by man, would you hear in your heart, maybe you'll remember. Jesus remembers it, records it, and will reward it. Not even a cup of cold water goes without Jesus remembering it, recording it, and rewarding it. Or can I give you from this passage one more thing to load into your arsenal when that hour comes? Because in this passage, Jesus shows us, listen to this, he shows us that the path to true glory is sacrificial service. When you see what Jesus says to these disciples in response, you'll see that Jesus shows us that the path to true glory is sacrificial service. The path to greatness is diaknos. Let me tell you what Jesus says, verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Do you hear his response? They ask, can we get a seat at your right and your left when you get into Jerusalem? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? Now, what is Jesus talking about? What's the cup? What's the baptism? The cup actually shows up four chapters later. If you go to Mark 14, Jesus is standing in a garden at night called Gethsemane, and the next day he's going to die. And in that hour, facing his death, looking at the prospect of what awaits him, he stares into what God has for him, and he begins to pray, and he says, Father, if it is possible, please remove this cup from me. See, Jesus knew his Bible, and he knew that in the first half of the Bible, it said that the cup was God's judgment, God's wrath, God's hatred, God's anger for sin, all poured in, as it were, into one cup, a goblet, from which the enemies of God would have to drink to its last drop. Only God, because he loves his enemies, handed that cup to Jesus. And now the Son of God would have to drink to the last drops the wrath and judgment and fury of God. And the baptism, what's this baptism? Jesus got baptized in Mark 1, nine chapters ago. What's the baptism that awaits him? See, he's saying, you don't know what you're asking because there is a submerging in suffering that awaits me. An immersion in sin, being buried under the wrath of God that's coming for me. You don't know what you're asking. See, they hadn't heard when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over and mocked, and spit on, and crucified, and killed. They just heard, and then he's going to rise. And Jesus is trying to say to them, you don't know what you're asking. We were talking through this passage in family worship this week with my kids and my wife, and my son said, you know, they really didn't know what was waiting for Jesus in Jerusalem, because there was somebody hung up on the right and hung up on the left of Jesus. And if James and John had any idea what it meant to really be at the right side and the left side of Jesus in Jerusalem, they would have never asked for this. 
Like hanging there, they would have said, Jesus, this is not what we meant. And we had a good laugh about it. That's right. You don't know what you're asking. But if you follow me, you will. You will drink from a cup and go through a baptism. You see, Jesus is showing that the path to glory comes through sacrificial service. That you carry a cross before you wear a crown. That you die to self before you rise to life. That you go down before you are raised. That you're brought low before you're lifted high. That the path to greatness, true greatness, is downward. It descends to the low places. And it's in the low places that you'll actually find Jesus. See, he calls his disciples and he says this. Verse 42. He called them to him and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Hear that. Jesus saying to his disciples, Listen, you know how the, Lord, the world operates. Everyone is clamoring for position. Everyone wants title. Everyone wants place and prominence and pride. You know how the world works, but it shall not be that way with you. What he's saying is, Tracy, and Daniel, and Freddie, and Brett, it shall not be that way with you. It's not to be that way with you. Because for us, if you want to be great among you, let them be your servant. 44, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So can I say to Tracy, to Brett, to Dan Daniel and Freddie, how will you find dignity and glory and honor in leaky roofs and managing ministries and caring for kids and practical needs and being the church's servants? You'll find it if you remember that Jesus said that's where true greatness is. You'll, you'll find it if you remember that sacrificial serving is where you find Jesus. And in fact, that's literally why Jesus came. Do you hear it? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To serve is literally why Jesus came. He came to serve. And for you, can I have you hear this one more time as it literally would have been? For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Literally, that's translated. For even the Son of Man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know where the glory in servanthood is found? It's because Jesus is there. He is the first and true and better deacon. And the good news of Christianity is Jesus, unlike any other, didn't come just to give you an example of service. What did he say? I came not to be served by any of you, but to serve you. Meaning, Jesus came to serve in a way that no one would ever serve Jesus back. This isn't reciprocal. This isn't you take his service and then you'll serve him. He's going to serve you in a way that no one will ever serve him back. He came to be a ransom for many. No one's ever going to do that back for him. In fact, you can't even be a Christian until you are served by Jesus in this way. A 
Un unrepayable service was done for you by Jesus. You don't give that back to him. Jesus served you. And a diaknos is someone who has been served by Jesus so that now they may serve others like Jesus. And so I want to say one more time to Freddie and to Daniel, to Brett and to Tracy, you are headed today on the path towards greatness. That's what God loved you enough to set you on this path for, towards greatness. That path goes down in servitude because you'll follow Jesus down towards greatness. And as you are called this day, would you remember, if you remember nothing else, etch into your soul, tattoo onto your heart, for even the Son of Man, the glorious Son of Man, came not to be deaconed, but to deacon and to give his life as a ransom for many. In a moment, I'll call Pastor Binu and these deacons to come forward, and we'll call them. Let me pray, and then I'll invite Pastor Binu to come. Father, we give you thanks for this time, and pray now that you would impress your word deep onto our souls, and that you might help every instinct of ours, every natural wiring of our humanity, which is dead set against all that we just heard, to be conformed into the image of Christ, who though he was equal to God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Help us all, and especially these brothers and sisters today, to join you there in the place of servitude. Come do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.